Now, if you were Jesus and you knew you only had a few hours left to impart the greatest wisdom to your disciples, what would you teach them? Hey, we're starting a brand new series and we're going to be dedicating this series to looking at the last 24 hours that Jesus had with his disciples before he gets arrested and taken away. Now, if you knew that this was one of the last lessons you get to teach your disciples, wouldn't it be one of the most important ones? So let's get started looking at verse 24. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And by them, they're talking about the disciples. Now, based on the context surrounding this verse and the following verses, we find out that Peter is probably puffing his chest up saying, Hey guys, if Jesus were to rank who the greatest is amongst his disciples, I'd probably be at the very top. And if you want some reasons for that, sure. Uh, well, first, I'm the oldest. And number two, I've been with Jesus the longest. And Jesus has like an inner three, like a core group of disciples. There's three of them, and I'm one of them. I've been in those core meetings every single time. So yes, I am the greatest disciple. And you could imagine the other disciples saying, no, I'm the greatest. Oh, well, at least I might be somewhere near the top of the list. Now, Jesus is greatly disturbed by this dispute. So he chimes in. He says to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. So Jesus is commenting on the idea of greatness. He's saying, hey, so when you say greatness, what do you mean by that? Because the group outside of this 12, the way they measure greatness is by how much power you have over other people's lives. Like, do you have the ability to control people and tell them what to do? And if it's not that, then it's by titles. Like, do you have like some amazing label that is attached to your name that makes you feel greater than other people around you? Because Pete, the way that you're talking about yourself right now certainly seems like you're trying to use their definition of greatness to talk about how much you're better than these disciples around you. Jesus continues, but you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus says, we're not like that. We don't rank greatness based off of how much power we have over other people. The way that we rank greatness is by how much we serve, how much we could lower ourselves beneath other people. So Jesus brings up a case in point example. Verse 27, he says, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? If you're at a restaurant and somebody brings you the food, who's the greater of the two? Well, you are because you're telling that person to bring you a certain type of dish. But then Jesus says this, but I am amongst you as one who serves. He says, I am the son of God. I outrank everybody here. But look back at the last three years we've been together. Have I not been serving you this entire time? Like I've been demonstrating for you what greatness truly looks like. If you look at me, I never used a God card on anybody here. Then Jesus goes into this little theological thing. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what does that all mean? He says, yes, technically as a son of God, I have authority over all humankind. And that sounds contradictory to the lesson I just taught you, but that's because we're not living in heaven yet. There will come a time when I will show the entire world that I have the authority to rule over everything because I am the Son of God. I will be sitting at the banquet table and you disciples could join me in with that because you guys have stood by me and you have suffered alongside me. But right now here on earth, that's not how we do it. You see, in this world, when we use words like authority and ruler, they have bad connotations because when people are given certain types of power, people often misuse it. 
but on heaven, authority and ruler has good connotations. You see, back in the book of Genesis, when God created humanity and animals, he gave authority over animals to human beings. And a lot of people today think that that's the right for human beings to do whatever they want with animals. But that's not the intended meaning of the word authority. Authority means to take care of, to be responsible for. Basically, there's going to come a time when ruling someone and caring and being responsible for that person are one and the same thing. Now, imagine Jesus teaching the 12 disciples at this point, and then he shifts gear and focuses on one, which is Peter, the guy that claims to be the greatest. And then he looks at him and starts to talk to him, addressing him by his former name, which is Simon. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he, Simon, Peter, replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Okay, so what's happening here? Jesus is basically saying, Simon, you think you're the greatest? Did you know behind the scenes, Satan's been trying to pull you away from me? I mean, a great disciple wouldn't desert his own master, would he? Well, you're about to do that. Within the next 24 hours, you're going to be disowning me three times. You will fall away, but don't worry, I've been praying for you. And when you come back with your humility, you're going to be able to strengthen and lead the people here. There's going to come a time when you will be known as great, but that's because you're going to be serving them with a heart of humility. Okay, so the next teachings of Jesus are highly controversial and contested. So let's dive right in. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. So if you've been with us through this journey of Luke, you'll know that Jesus sent out the disciples two by twos. And when he did that, he told them to go out there without carrying any of the essentials. So Jesus is calling back to that lesson and saying, What did you learn from that? Did you have any needs when you went out into the world without any, any purse or bag or sandal? And the disciples answered, No, we actually found out that our neighbors are very friendly. When they saw that we were in need, they took care of us. They gave us meals. They gave us a place to sleep. It was really nice. We didn't lack anything. And now the controversial part. Verse 36. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Here Jesus is saying, well, now a lot of people are going to try to kill you. You won't be able to count on the people around you to take care of you if you're in need. So make sure you take your purse, your bag, your sandals with you. And then he says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloaks so you could buy one. Is Jesus advocating for violence? Now, I've heard people say this is Jesus teaching us self-defense, but I don't think that's what he's trying to do here. And there's many, many reasons for why I believe that. And I'll, I'll just give you two today. Number one, it's not consistent with what Jesus has been teaching. For the past few years, Jesus has been teaching, hey, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, pray for your enemies. He never once said, attack your enemies. So there's that. And the second reason is that later on, when Peter uses a sword to defend Jesus, Jesus rebukes him. He basically says, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, Peter. And then after that, Jesus demonstrated to Peter what he should have done, which is he participated in healing the enemy. So what did Jesus mean by sell your cloak so you could buy a sword? Well, the clue is in the very next verse. It is written, as he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. 
Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12, and he basically says, that verse right there is a prediction of what the Messiah, that's me, has to go through. And in that passage, it talks about how the Messiah is going to be arrested, he's going to be beat down. All the bad things that's about to happen, including my execution, was prophesied a long, long time ago. But here's the problem. The Jewish authorities don't have the right to kill anybody because the Romans took it away from them. And right now in this story, Jesus is in trouble only with the Jews. In order for Jesus to be arrested and executed eventually, he has to be arrested by the Romans, but he hasn't performed any kind of offense to the Roman Empire yet. Now, there was a rule at the time that says that a Jew is not allowed to carry any swords, any kind of weapon. So here, Jesus is instructing his disciples to carry a sword with them so that having a position and weapon could get them arrested. Okay, but check out what the disciples says here. They said, see Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough, he replied. You see, all you need is one sword and that's all it takes. But here the disciple says, oh, we already have two. It's like if I wanted to teach children about the dangers of violence and I asked you to bring me a prop gun to make a point, but instead you brought two real loaded guns, my question to you would be, why do you have that in your position in the first place? You see, Jesus was not expecting his disciples to be carrying a sword. In this case, they have two, which implies that these disciples were already planning on resorting to violence. That's why at the end of this passage, he says, okay, that's enough, I'm done. I don't wanna talk about this anymore. And he cuts the conversation right there. You see, the implication here is the disciples, within 24 hours of Jesus being taken away, they still believe that greatness is achieved by who could win battles, who could kill who, who has the bigger sword, who has two swords. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that it's not good to be great. As a matter of fact, he says that greatness is a great thing, but first we have to redefine what greatness looks like. And no matter how many sermons Peter heard from Jesus, and no matter how many times he's seen Jesus perform servanthood to him personally, he still can't get out of his head that greatness is about serving, not about lording over other people. But we can't point fingers at Peter because we struggle with the same thing too. Because when I imagine greatness, I think about people with a greater education than me, or somebody who has more money, or somebody who has a nicer looking body, or a nicer smile for that matter. How about a nicer car or less drama in their lives? Jesus is telling Peter, hey, if you go down that path, you will always fail. Or by some miracle, let's just say you succeed at being great in the eyes of the world then you're not going to be able to rest because you're always wondering if the other 11 disciples are going to somehow sneak up behind you and take the higher spot. If your goal is to achieve for greatness by lording over other people, everybody else around you is a threat to you. Everybody else around you is a competition to you. Instead, look at greatness as, have I served you more than anybody else can? Whoever serves the most or whoever could lower themselves the lowest for somebody else's well-being is the grace in the kingdom of God. This week, we all witnessed the ugliness of unchecked power. But in the midst of that, I came across this picture. This is Congressman Andy Kim. Now, I don't know if he's Republican or Democrat, but all I know is that this picture, it was taken around midnight after the insurrection happened. This is what Jesus meant, that the world would be better if we had more people like this. Humility and servanthood is what the kingdom of God is all about. I mean, when you consider the fact that this is one of the last things that Jesus could teach his disciples, you kind of see how important this is. 
What if the people in the United States lived like this for the next, I don't know, three months? That the more we serve, the more we're selfless, the greater we are. Would our country be better or would it be worse? Or you know what? What if just only the people who call themselves evangelicals lived according to this principle for the next two months or so? Wouldn't you all agree that the world would be a better place? So church, may we continue to look at Jesus, the suffering servant, to define for us what greatness truly looks like. And may the Holy Spirit transform our hearts little by little every single day so that we could become more and more like Jesus to the world. And through our selfless acts, may we all experience heaven together. God bless.